Hello and welcome to Recovery Survey, the podcast where we survey recovering addicts with different backgrounds and different lengths of clean time and ask them questions about different recovery topics. I'm super excited about today's episode and the new film, Never Be Done, the Richard Glenn Lett story. My guests today are Richard Lett and director Roy Ty. Welcome to the show, guys. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background, Richard? Well, I was on stage when I was six months old. My family sang in music festivals, and they plunked me down on stage and in front of them as an infant, and I upstaged them all, and they never forgave me. And um, <laughs> I ended up going to the university where I got a degree in education. I was going to become a drama teacher. But when I graduated, there were no jobs. And a friend of mine had been doing stand-up at a little bar in Edmonton called the Sidetrack Cafe. This was in 1986. And uh, very early, like February of 86. And uh, so I went down there and because I'd been performing and doing plays and theater and all sorts of stuff like that, I just cobbled together some funny things, went down and tried stand-up, and um, turned out I was uh, a bit of a natural. Uh, that time period was also when stand-up comedy started blossoming in in uh, sort of regular markets up until that point. In Canada, anyway, stand-up had been pretty much on television. Johnny Carson and um, and maybe in Vegas, but you never saw live stand-up comedy. And then right around that early 80s and um, was when the comedy boom sort of happened, and that's when uh, clubs started opening up. And I went from, you know, doing my first open mic to headlining within four years uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I did have a kind of a knack for it, so I, you know, I, I was able to rise very quickly. The other is that there just wasn't a lot of comedians, so there was uh, more work than there were comedians to do it. So, um, so I was, you know, sort of fast tracked into headlining because, um, you know, we just didn't have enough comics. So that, uh, so then I ended up. Um, touring a lot in the bar circuit and the kind of um, rugged frontier of uh, Western Canada at about the same time that Yuck Yucks, which was the comedy chain that uh, was established in Toronto, started opening up clubs across the country. And I was um, sort of headhunted by them. And I ended up um, touring as a, a stand-up comedian and, uh, as a headliner and then MC and the various uh, jobs. And I ended up um, becoming a full-time professional comedian, which I did for, well, I've been doing it now for over 30 years. But at that point, um, about 10 years in, it was pretty much full-time. And, uh, and I uh, sort of made my living there. And I was... Um, you know, like a lot of comedians, drinking and you know, getting high, mostly pot and uh, and booze, and um, didn't seem to be a much of a problem. This is, you know, the nature of the business is that not only do you uh, are you allowed to do it, but you're encouraged to do it. It's a very strange job that that you show up and your boss offers you booze um, before you go to work. And so, um, so I took advantage of that. Um, but as you know, time went on, I, um, I just, uh, the, the booze became, uh, sort of more, more regular. It wasn't too bad on my shows. It was my behavior after the shows that really started to be a problem. Um, and people just didn't want to have me around, they didn't want to work with me because I, I was um, getting um, 
you know, sort of nasty, abusive, obnoxious, uh, entitled, you know, I just felt like, um, you know, that I was deserving to be rich and famous. And when that didn't happen, I blamed everyone else. And um, so that um, it reached a point where when I was living in Vancouver, where I thought that all I really needed was a really good tape of my show. And that would sort out these, you know, the problems with my career, which was floundering at that point. And so I got a hold of um, Danny Menlo, who was uh, a videographer and an amateur comedian himself. And he, uh, to try and enlist him to record one of my shows. And um, he was leaving town. He was moving to Toronto at that point, but he told me about Roy. Uh, this kid that had a camera, and um, so I called up Roy and then uh, agreed to meet with him and then stood him up and didn't show up because I was wasted and, and you know, I didn't care. And then I sort of woke up and kind of checked out some of the stuff that he had online and realized that he actually was pretty good for a young guy, and so I called him up, and we met, and I started talking to him about filming my show, and in mid-sentence, he said, I want to start filming you now. And I went, what do you mean now? That I want to go to my car and get my camera and start filming you now. And I said, okay. And that was how the project PM. Over to you, Roy. <laughs> well, yeah, that's pretty much Richard is exactly right. That's that's what happened. I, uh, I, you know, when I when I first sat down with Richard at that Starbucks, we both lived in the same neighborhood together. Actually, strangely enough, so Richard, I knew from when I was uh, I did stand up when I was about eighteen years old. I was giving it a try. Um, and I did a set and Richard was actually the headliner that night. And when I got off stage, you know, Richard, Richard was laughing and thought it was funny. And he said to me, he goes, he, he said to me like, Oh, great, great set. Really funny. And so I was like, Oh my God, like Richard let like thought I was funny, you know? And, and, and it threw up the, the comedy scene in, in Vancouver. Uh, you know, you always saw Richard around. Right. And, he was a notorious figure. Like people just knew him because he was a headliner and he's been doing it for years. So, you know, when you're a young comedian and, and a veteran comedian, like gives you like kind of like the thumbs up, it feels good. And so I was always like, Oh, cool. Like, you know, I, I never panned out a stand up career or, or went any further than that. I, it, it wasn't for me. I, I, I just stand up is just not my way to express myself, but I ended up creating a, a web series and, and doing that kind of stuff. And I always wanted to eventually one day see if Richard wanted to play an actor, a character, sorry, in this web series I was doing. And it, and it just it never got around to unfold. And I, that's how I met Richard because I said it, I'm friends with Danny as well. And I mentioned it to Danny. I said, hey, can, you know, would you talk to Richard ever? I'd like to work with him on, on in some facet, but I was more thinking like this show. And he was like, yeah, I'm Richard's cool. Like, I'm sure. So I was like, oh, okay. And then that's when we met that first time. And when we met at the Starbucks, we were, we were talking and it was, it, it just felt like a natural conversation for me, you know, cause I, at that time I had a camera and I was producing stuff. And this was before the days of YouTube when it was like really easy to just put things online and stuff like that. Um, and having a camera at that time was a big deal where nowadays everyone has a camera and can shoot stuff. Right. It wasn't like that back in 2008, 2009 as as it is now so um you know there was always people asking me to film stuff for them and do that kind of stuff um and you know for me it really was just like i just want to work with people that i some sort of somehow creatively connect with and when me and richard talked at the starbucks it was it just felt like a it was a it was a good conversation like i felt like i i understood where he was coming from as a person and I felt like he understood where I was coming from as a person. And so it all started as me at first as being like, I don't know, this just sounds like something fun to do. 
like he sounds like an interesting person and we just kind of will just start filming things and that's typically how I work like even to this day when I'm directing and producing and doing things out here in LA it, it just comes down to the person so and then I'm always like well let's just start working you know it's not really like let's let's talk about working let's actually just start working and uh, with Richard that was the case I was like oh yeah let, let's just start filming right now and he was like okay and then we started filming and, I, and at first it was just fun like I was like I don't know what I'm making I don't know what this is about I know that I'm just following I'm just filming this guy and like who knows it's just cool you know, and it was just more, more fun at first. And, and like Richard partied and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, Oh, this might be really fun, you know? And then that first night we went out to the Yuck Yucks club. Uh, we got kicked out <laughs> <So> <laughs> because Richard got into a fight with the owner or no, the manager at the time. And then he kicked us out of the club. So I was like, okay, all right, this is, this is interesting. Let's, let's keep doing this. And I, then we got together the next day and I did some more interviews and, as time went on, it was just a series of interviews and, and just spending time with Richard, not having an idea where it was. Actually, the DP, Graham, who's, who's you know helped me with the project, he's credited as the director of photography, even though he did much more than that. Um, he, uh, you know, he asked me early on, like, what are we, what are you doing here? Like, what are we making? And I said, <laughs> I said, I don't, I, I go, I don't know. I go, I, I don't, I, I, I go, like, you're asking me that and i have no idea i said and he's he's going well i just don't get it like what's the deal with him this is right when richard was like teetering on the edge right like he hasn't quit he quit drinking i think or he said he quit drinking maybe it was like a week or two into that but he was out he said that he was only going to be smoking pot and that would help him not drink so it's like a classic addict mentality right <laughs> where it's like oh i'll just stay sober by smoking pot you know what I mean? Like, it's, so, you, you know, when we went out that night and that's when Graham, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here on Graham, but Graham at first didn't know how to take Richard's personality. Like he was, a, he just didn't understand it because Richard was rough and gruff and just did his own thing. And for me, you know, I was like, oh, this is exciting. But for Graham, you know, it, it wasn't that his, his experience in that way. Like he didn't understand it. And I think he was a bit, um, he was kind of off put by it in a, in a, in a way. But when we, that night when Graham was saying like, what are we making? I was like, I don't know, Graham, I'm just showing up with a camera and I'm going to film Richard set tonight. I don't know what that's going to do. And he goes, okay, okay. And I was like, if you want to come help me, come help me. And if you don't, that's fine too, but I'm leaving now. And so when he jumped in my car and we picked up Richard in my like 1990 Honda Civic, and then we drove out to, uh New Westminster and then that's when Richard <laughs> made that heckled the heckler and made the heckler cry. So that's when uh <laughs> that's when we got that footage. So I think after that experience, that's when Graham finally got the same experience that I got and was like, Oh, I get it now. We don't know what we're making, but we're making something. And it's like, right. And then we just rode me Graham and I just rode the train to, you know, to where it is today. Right. So that's just it. Just it was a perfect storm, really. Um, it, nothing, you know. I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I really did. It's one of those things where I was like, I didn't know anything about addiction or alcoholism at the time. All I knew is that if I'm starting to make a documentary on this guy when it got really bad, that that I that I that I don't I can't get in the middle of that. Like, I didn't give Richard money ever. I didn't help him out when he was getting evicted. I didn't offer him a place to stay. You know, the only thing I did was ever buy him a pack of smokes. So, you know, I, that was my perspective. But with, when I look back at it now and I think, like, it's interesting that there must have been some sort of higher purpose to the story or a higher presence involved. Because because by me not doing that, I later learned in my life that was actually me not enabling Richard. And it, and as sad as it was and as hard as it was to watch someone that I care about, you know, run and get run into the ground like that and hit that dramatic of a rock bottom um it was hard to just stand by and watch it because i felt like a scumbag like am i why, why am i filming this am i just some like cheap reality show producer you know and and i had those mixed emotions but for some reason i stuck with it but the beautiful thing that it worked out is by me not ever trying to interject i didn't enable richard and it and in a way Richard had to then decide for himself what he wants to do, right? Like he had to decide like, 
okay, when he was in a homeless shelter and I'm interviewing him on January 2nd, you know, it's like, that's hard to do. That's not an easy interview. That's sad, you know, but I'm not going to go there and like be all sad. It's like, I go there with my camera and I listen to him. And then it's like that he's telling me at the end of that interview that he's getting into a recovery center. And I'm like, oh, okay. So like, there's hope in that too. Right. So it's interesting how it worked out for my experience of like, by me not, it actually, not, I'm not taking credit for him getting sober by any means. I'm saying that like, by me not enabling him and the camera being there, you know, I, I, I think that that had like a higher purpose at play there for, for myself that I wasn't, that maybe I was being used in that regard. Like, you know, maybe there's a higher power going on going like, Hey, well, your, your documentary is cute and all, but here, let, let God work here and save this man's life. You know what I mean? Like, so it's an, it was an interesting experience for me for sure. You know, cause it wasn't, it crossed my moral boundaries at that time. It was confusing for me. So if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I've never heard Roy talk so long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's usually humming and hawing and, you know, that was, uh, it was cogent and even true. <laughs> so there's a scene where Richard all your stuff is in the parking garage and you've cleared out of the apartment and it seems like like you're getting ready to walk away from the documentary and like you're completely done you're at that rock bottom you end up getting in your car and you said you drove 7,000 kilometers what was going through your head at that moment and uh, what made you decide to keep doing the documentary and, and continue this whole project? Um, well, you're right. That, that was, um, I had run out of patience. And fortunately, I think, you know, again, if you look at, you know, in the world of recovery, which is a spiritual journey, then you look at the spiritual journey of the documentary. Um, Roy wasn't there that day, and Graham was. He, he just been sent to shoot some B-roll. Um, and Graham is a wonderful guy. He's a super nice guy, and um, he's a very gentle man. And um, the fact that I turned on him is evidence of just how um, gone I am. And how um, angry I am. You know, I was obviously in a lot of pain. And uh, very often if you're a male, your pain presents as rage. And um, and I was mostly terrified. I didn't know what was going on. And it was, you know, frustrating because I couldn't seem to fix it. I couldn't. All my stuff had been moved to this parking spot and you know Graham's asking me well what are you gonna do and I'm going I you know I don't know and um you're right there was that that point and in the film it's quite brilliant how you know I, I think one of the more striking moments is when I walk down that ramp and I stamp on the the garage door opener and the door opens and I walk into like white light. And at that point, that point, it's either um, divine intervention or death, one of the two. And, um, and so, yeah, I ran, um, you know, I got my car and I was um, fully psychotic by that point. It's difficult for me to recount what was going on there because I was um, uh, overwhelmed, you know, I was mentally ill at that point. Um, withdrawal from drugs and alcohol um, is a dangerous uh, medical situation. And so as I was um, losing grip on, on reality, um, all I could do was, was drive. And I did, I drove and drove and drove and, and, and went off the grid for a while. And there's a period of time where nobody knows where I am. And, um, you know, I was just driving and, um, just thinking that, you know, that I was, um, 
that I that there was a gang after me. So you know, I was psychotic. I was, you know, running away from a you know a gang that didn't exist, and I was sleep deprived, and I was uh, undernourished, and um, you know, so I wasn't um, drinking and using at that point. Um, I was uh, worse. You know, I, I was um, in withdrawal, and this you know big Irish body that had been accustomed to um, having alcohol and drugs in its system now no longer did. And, you know, that like withdrawal from alcohol is, is one of the more dangerous things, you know, that you can do. They suggest that Amy, you know, Weinstein was uh, that she died not from drinking, but from stopping drinking. And, um, you know, that, that there is, uh, many accounts of people that in withdrawal from alcohol, they they perish. I mean, when I was in treatment, I met some guys that were at you know serving at the end of their sentences from prison, and they told me that if you go into prison and you tell them you're um, an alcoholic, they will monitor you and they will give you Valium and they will chemically and medically take you through that. If you go in there and tell them you're a heroin addict, they'll say, well, good luck with that, um, because you won't die from withdrawal from heroin, but you will die from withdrawal from alcohol. And so, um, and, and part of those symptoms are uh, convulsions and strokes and heart attacks and, and hallucinations. And that's what was happening to me is that it was... Um, you know, Brett, hallucinations are not just seeing things that aren't there, but believing things that aren't true. And um, the irony is that I was driving around with a bottle of scotch in my car and a bottle of Chivas. That's how much of a douchebag I was that I had to drive around with an 80, $80 bottle of liquor in my car to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic, that that wasn't the problem, right? I mean, addiction is the only disease that will tell you you don't have it, right? So, you know, I was busy trying to convince myself that wasn't the case. But on um, Boxing Day uh, 2009, I um, I was so angry that I, I drank it, right? I mean, and when I, I drank that bottle of scotch on Boxing Day and you know, sometimes when we go on 12-step calls, we'll take alcohol with us to try and stabilize the person that we're trying to help because our system is so used to having the, the burden of that, um, you know, depressive, that heavy depressive alcohol is on our system that in order to stabilize, we need to drink some. And, and that's, I believe, what happened to me by drinking that scotch and knocked myself out of psychosis. and back to a familiar place, hung over. And so the next morning I woke up and, you know, in the in the second step of the 12 steps, it says we came to believe in a part greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. And, you know, I'm a weird guy. And so I, uh, um, you know, restoring sanity meant, you know, I was thinking about that night on December 27th, 2009, and thinking like, restore me to sanity. That must mean that I was once sane and I no longer am. And, you know, the restoration of my sanity began under, when I admitted that I was insane. You know, crazy people don't think they're crazy. And, um, and so, you know, when I went, oh my God, I'm just, I'm crazy. I'm nuts. This is not, there's no gang after me. Everybody who loves me is 50 miles away. They're, you know, I just didn't, it was terrifying, it was humiliating, and I didn't want to go there, I wanted to return to being this survivor man, this, you know, like, you know, guy that was, you know, living out some movie of the week, and, you know, wanted to be dramatic, and didn't want to be just a garden variety alcoholic, but, but you know, that sanity, it, it took hold, and I couldn't, I couldn't fight it off. I was just too tired to stay crazy any longer. And, and so I, um, I woke up, 
the summer twenty seven outside of an Orlando club and you want to talk about divine intervention. After driving seven thousand kilometers, where did I wake up? But right outside, right across the street from um an Orlando club, which is, you know, heavy duty code for a alcohol twelve step meeting. Um, you know, we're so clever. Al Anon did it. Anyway, um uh <laughs> Don't get don't get alcoholics to try and be spies and stuff. We will be, you know, caught immediately. But anyway, um, but as I said, many times I'm desperate for a cigarette, and if you can't bum a cigarette outside of a twelve step meeting, you have no skills at all. And so I went in there and I asked the woman gave me a cigarette and a coffee, and. I was a mess. My hands were all gnarled up. I'd been living in, you know, closed campgrounds and stuff. My 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 fingers were scarred and gnarled, and and I was just a mess. And she said, "Are you here to get into the valley?" I had no idea what that meant, but it got me a coffee and a cigarette. So I said, "Sure." She said, "Okay, Les will be here in half an hour." Like Les, okay, whatever. Well, Les was an alcohol and drug counselor, and the valley was Miracle Valley, which is a treatment center outside of Abbotsford. And by saying that I was here to get in the valley, I was admitting to having a serious alcohol and drug problem. So he, Les showed up, and it took him like 10 minutes to figure out what was going on and that I was, you know, uh, living in my car and that I was, uh, you know, running away from a gang and that I was in a lot of danger, not from a gang, but from myself. And he got me into a homeless shelter and, you know, that was December 27th and I, I slept for a day and a half and, uh, and they fed me and there's all sorts of other people there who were very kind and, uh, and and sympathetic and not judgmental. You know, they go, oh, you're running away from a gang that didn't exist? Yeah, I did that. Well, you know, better to be safe than sorry. And, you know, as we shared the butt of a, you know, one cigarette with six guys in a tool shed and outside the um, homeless shelter. But, um, but then, um, you know, then I realized I was going to have to Get up to fight back, and so there was a uh, internet at the homeless shelter. So I I sent Roy a note saying I lived <laughs> and I'm in, I'm in mission. And there's a funny scene in the movie where Roy's reading like like these guys didn't reconstruct or like there's no like a dramatic, a dramatized version of any of this thing. They just got every moment as it was happening. So there's Roy reading this email, which begins with a, uh, a an expletive to describe someone who's homosexual. And, you know, this letter um, to Roy saying, I didn't die, but it was close, and I'm here. And... And then, you know, recovery began. You know, I started going to meetings and, and he came out and, you know, he did buy me a pack of cigarettes. I think he bought pizza for some of the guys at the homeless shelter one. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, at the to, Papa, yeah, Papa John's or something. Yeah, because they, they all went, you know, they were, he was interviewing them too and stuff, but I don't think they made it in the dock, but, you know, they were there for the pizza. And, yeah. uh, and it was pathetic and embarrassing. And, you know, and as far as, you know, the documentary goes, I really, you know, Brett, I didn't care. I was fighting a disease that was trying to kill me. And, you know, it was pleasant enough to see Roy, but it wasn't like it made any difference to me at that point. I was, I was going to die from this thing if I didn't, you know, really, 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 you know, like put um, all the energy and effort I could into it. 
it's it's you know it's interesting that you know people don't understand if you're not an addict if you're not an alcoholic you know some you know some of the reviews that come out they talk about what a jerk I am and that's putting and I'm paraphrasing um but one of the reviews called me a real life villain but the reality is is that I was sick I was very sick and you know, I wasn't a bad man trying to get good. I was a sick man trying to get well. And it took everything to do that. Was Roy and Graham, did they play a part in that? Absolutely. Did they facilitate it? No, they didn't. That was that was God. <laughs> God yeah. said, no, you got a documentary to be the subject of, dude. You're not going to be dying yet. And, <laughs> you know... And so, yeah, it's hard not to um, give Roy and Graham credit as being sort of emissaries. A friend of mine, Kathleen, who's in the movie, um, she said to me that she prayed for extra angels for me when I was on that run. And, you know, it is, I've said this before, it, it would appear to me that those angels came in the bodies of of Roy and Graham, right? They didn't lift a finger, but um, seemingly by having that camera and them there, I it gave me that extra sort of strength to dig in my heels and not and not give up. And you know, this is a terrible disease. We lose so many people, right? So many people. I you know, and and you know, why did I live and why don't other people? It can just be a moment, and maybe, maybe that you know, me digging in my heels and saying, you know, no, I'm going to go to that meeting, and no, I'm going to do my steps, and I'm going to try, and I'm not going to give up. Um, maybe that extra ounce of, of strength came from the fact that there were two guys that were watching. So anyway, that's that. <laughs> Do you want a longer answer? <laughs> so I will say you know, the whole process of making a documentary as crazy as it was with Richard, uh, or the documenting Richard, there was a lot of laughter shared. It, it was it's incredible. It's something that I would always look back on is is how much laughter was actually shared through the darkest times but yeah. i'm an advocate of like you know that hope is the only thing that's real and i really believe that this documentary is a product of hope you know it's it's one of those one of those things where i'm like you know like yeah if people don't understand addiction or whatever of course it's it's easy it's it's, it's easy to judge richard right it's you know, it's it's easy, um, and I get it. I, I judged him during the process, right? Graham judged him. Everyone judged him, right? And uh, that's just the way of the world. I can't change that. But I, when I look at the the journey we went on together, it's um, one of those things where, like I said, anyone out there who's struggling with addiction or alcoholism or has a family member that may, you know, I believe that they when they watch this from the response that I've gotten from those people that that they say to me the same thing. Like I needed to see that I better understand my brother now, or, you know, my dad was a bad alcoholic or whatever. And they're able to understand it or themselves. I had a girl come up to me at the end of the studio city film festival. And, uh, and she was crying and she said to me that she, she, she's like, Oh my God, I, I think I needed to see that. And, you know, she was, she was in the, she's in the adult entertainment industry and, you know, she's probably has her own struggles and things like that. I don't want to assume too much upon her, but I definitely knew that she was in tears that day and, and and just saw like another alcoholic get through it. Right. And that's what AA is, right. It always says like a recovery is just one alcoholic talking to another. And that's really what I believe the documentary. My hope is that's what my documentary does. And I believe it does do that, that it's, it's the starting stages of, if you watch it and you are either an alcoholic or have a family member, it's like, there it is. It starts right there. It's just one alcoholic talking to another. And the beautiful thing with movies is that they talk to us, right? It's all, all storytelling talks to us. So 
you know, I, I hope it's a launching off point for other people out there. I really do. And it, it sucks because Richard's being used for that, right? <laughs> he has a new purpose now where he, sorry, Richard lived. So now he has a, a bigger cross to burden, right? Like the, now he's alive and his, in, in this documentary is out there. And, you know, like that's a, you know, if I was in Richard's shoes, I, I probably wouldn't want to be in that position. Personally, I wouldn't want to be documented in that. Although I will say Richard is carrying it and he's living it. And, you know, we talk about it lots where, you know, I hope it does bring hope to other people because the documentary really is opening that door for that, right? It's the beginning stages of what else I'll talk another. Richard is setting that, setting that out there for people to see it. That like, hey, you can survive this thing, but you're, you're going to have to make some changes and you'll make those decisions. That's why I always say to people, like a guy hit me up the other day and was like, oh, what you did with Richard and that documentary, like, is great. And it's just like, I always say to them, like, I didn't do that. Like, you'd have to call Richard, but I didn't get Richard sober. I didn't help Richard in that. Like, I'm the last person, right? Like, that, that's, that's what I'm telling you. Like, Richard did all that. Uh, but when you're watching a documentary, you you know, you're looking at it through a different lens. But in truth, it's like, no, Richard did all that. He's the one who got himself out of that. He's the one who changed. He's the one who's still alive today. I didn't do that. No one did that. He did that. He made that decision. So that's why I say, like, through all those darkest times, it's amazing that I can still laugh with Richard, right? Like, <laughs> to this day, it's like there's times where it's just like, I'm still laughing with Richard, and thank God for that. And, like, throughout the whole process, it's, yeah, it's such a comedy is, is a lot deeper than a man flipping on a banana peel. That's for sure. I had another question uh, there at the end of the movie, Richard, you decided to go back and do stand up again. And you said something along the lines of that. It was easier to do stand up once you got sober. Was it difficult for you to make that decision to go back into that atmosphere where the drugs and the alcohol were so readily available? And what made you decide to get back on stage and perform? Well, you know, Brad, it was interesting because I, um, I was, when I was in rehab, um, and I hadn't done stand-up in months, and I was very frustrated because I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. And, you know, there was a uh, group, you know, there's a big group and little group in, in rehab. And so um, in big group, uh, they went around and everyone was, was allowed to ask questions about of, of each person. And when it got on that I did stand-up comedy, um, and every question was about stand-up. And uh, one of the guys said, did you ever do it loaded? And I said, oh, yeah, but I prefer to do it sober because your timing is better. And then um, later on, I was uh, walked around the grounds with one of the counselors and he said, How are you doing, Rick? And I said, Well, you know, I'm 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 just sad because uh, everyone keeps talking about stand up and I and I don't think I can do it anymore and I, I keep praying for what I should do and and it's just made me really sad. And he goes, Well, you did say you prefer to do it sober. And I went, Well, yeah, I mean I technically I did say that. I mean, you know, you're taking out of context, but you know, <laughs> and then, um, then a week or so later, uh, one of the guys working the one of the monitors working the graveyard shift. Uh, you know, I was up late that night, sitting in the smoke tent talking, and and I have a a distinct voice, and he heard my voice. This guy, he walked over, he said, "Oh shit, is that Richard Lett? They told me there was a comedian here. They didn't tell me there was a real comedian here." And he was a magician and a heroin addict, as they often are. Anyway, um, he had done shows with me. And he said, you know, um, every now and then I like to bring in my kit and do a show for the guys. Why don't I bring in my kit on Saturday, do a little magic for the guys, and you can do like 15 minutes in front of me to warm them up. And I... We grudgingly agreed and wandered around for the next couple of days, cobbling together some jokes that I had. And, and you know, on the night of the, the performance, I, um, I 
you know, I did something different instead of, you know, doing a couple of lines and a couple of shots. Uh, before the show, I, uh, I prayed. I prayed that my words be of service. And, um, and then I remember like 40 guys sitting on um, donated couches under fluorescent lights in the TV lounge at Kinghaven and, um, and, you know, and I started and, and I think these guys were as nervous as I was. And, you know, at first it was kind of a, a chuckle and then a, you know, a snort and a laugh and a howl. And then they just, and it just took off and it just, you know, you know, it, it, they just uh, went crazy for it. And afterwards, one of them said to me, you know, you're going to get back and you're going to be funnier than ever. And you're going to owe us a lot of money. And, um, and it's tough, but because I, as I tell that story, I, I see some of those faces and, and some of them are fans of mine and you know, follow me on Twitter or whatever, but some didn't make it. And it's heartbreaking because this disease doesn't care. These were kind, smart, young, strong young men and and they died and and so when i you know when i think about that that one of the last things they did in my life was encourage me to get back to do it you know i um feel sort of as an homage to them that um to not give up not just on um life but on you know being funny and and doing it sober so you know it's a real you know some of the talking about the the wind beneath your wings or the wind of your sails or those those the angels that get you through these um side of moments because it hasn't been like everyone went oh he's back let's make him rich and famous no the grind was there just as it was before, but you, you know, I feel a, a commitment to those to those guys that that for some random reason didn't get to um, make it through, and so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I prayed a lot before I went to the clubs the first time, and I, and I ended up writing a show that is featured at the end of the film, and and you know, touring that, and I've done many shows, hundreds of shows for recovery conventions and treatment centers, fundraisers for, you know, campouts for addicts and all that sort of stuff. And um, because, you know, I figure, you know, I was spared and I, I wasn't spared to, to go off and, you know, not use the, the talent that, you know, that my higher power had given me to be funny. I just had to use it, you know, for a different reason to not, not to make myself look like a big shot, um, you know, but to help people with it. And so that's, that's what I believe I'm doing with this documentary. You know, I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of comments about what a bad guy I was or even am. Um, but if there's someone out there that has, you know, facing saying and doing bad things when they were sick and they see this doc and they go, well, you know, you know, he uh, was able to find forgiveness for himself enough to, to, you know, be this guy in this film telling these jokes and poems at the end of it all. And maybe, maybe I can too. And, you know, you save one life and you change the world, you know. And, you know, if Roy and Graham saved this life, then they certainly have, in no small part, have changed the world. So I feel that's sort of the legacy of this doc. So were there any parts that got left out of the documentary that you wish had made it into the final cut, Roy? 
Um, no, I'm 100% satisfied with every frame that's in there. Um, I had, uh, you know, I did a lot of screenings before um, at my studio here in uh, in Burbank, and uh, you know, people give their feedback and all that kind of stuff, and um, and and I'm grateful for that feedback. And a lot, a lot of people actually. Uh, gave some gave some great feedback in in regard to uh, sh- the structure of it and and how to deliver it on on a more uh, concise and clear path. Um, but uh, you know, some people said to me near the end that they felt it was a bit too long, and some people also you know there's there was one scene that was cut that my editor wanted to keep in that I that I said no it doesn't need to be in there. Um, and uh, for me, I I I I'm it's hard for me to say I made because I, I didn't right? like it's a documentary, but when I'm talking in the sense that I made, I'm talking in the technical aspects of crafting a film. Right. So the, 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 the length and the pacing and the, and, and, the, and the structure of the story um, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. That is at that time that I did that, that is the, the that I gave it my all. And um, I like that it's exactly 80 minutes. It doesn't, I don't believe it's too long. And the scene that I decided to cut that my editor wanted to keep in there, it was a scene where Richard was on the beach. We did uh, a final interview with Richard. So after the scene at the end of the the documentary, before he goes into his one man show, um, he's in the underground. I took him back to the underground of where everything got kicked, where he was, where he was evicted, right? So I took him back to that space and we reflected on it. Um, and then we went and did another interview on the beach on my way to the airport. And, um, and, and you can see some of the promo art is actually from that interview. It's not in the documentary. There's this line in there that my, that my editor liked that, that, that Richard said that uh, it was what he said earlier that, you know, it, it was about being unwell, right? Like that it, it's not about like, this guy is like an asshole. It's like, no, this guy was sick and this, and he's being well. And then he says that if this message, if this, if this documentary, or what, I, what, what I'm showing the world, because Richard's opening himself up, obviously in this documentary, if it brings hope to someone else like that, then I think it served its purpose. And um, yeah, I, I, I cut that scene from the doc because I didn't want people to like Richard. I'm just joking. It was actually a very, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good moment, but it, w- it was repetitive. It was repetitive information that was already there and it was already there in the sub, and it was already there in the subtext as well. So it was a scene that, um, yeah, I, I took it out and I kept getting feedback that people thought that that was the end of the doc. Like when that, that scene used to be before we went into the underground, right? And um, even though we shot it after that, but it, the way, what he was talking about was serving a purpose to the build to the end of the documentary, and um, and it was and it, and, it, and it was just holding this. It was holding us back. And when the when that scene ended, it felt like that was the end of the doc. And I was like, okay, well, I have a decision to make because either I end my do- my doc here and I don't get to go to the underground where I believe is the most profound moment uh, in the whole thing. Or I ended here on the beach, and 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 it and then it felt very movie of the week, and I was like, you know, I, I, it just was one of those scenes that I couldn't have both because it clearly was the feedback was that people were either getting confused, or they were feeling like it was going on too long, or that it was, you know, or, you know, just there, it wasn't feeling right for them, and then that's my job as the filmmaker and my job with my editors to figure out why it's feeling awkward for them because an audience isn't going to tell you why they're not filmmakers, right? They're people viewing things. They're either just like a comedian. They're either going to laugh at your joke or they're not. They're not going to tell you why your joke didn't work, right? Like that's not, it's not their job to do that. My job as a filmmaker is to figure that out. So what I came to and figured out um, was that I was like, yeah, it's, it's repetitive of information. It's being repeated and we have to make a decision. And I was like, I, I, I'm not going to end my documentary on that interview. So and this Adam was like, I know you're right. He's like, it, it, it does need to go. He's like, I hate to lose it. I really love this scene. He's like, and I go, I do too. And then I go, but like to serve the p- greater purpose of this story, it, it, it needs to go. And he was like, I know, I know it does. And then that was the only scene that we cut, but that, that was me wanting to cut it. So I was, I was more, I was satisfied with cutting that scene. 
there's funny little things like here and there. Um, my favorite scene is the scene where like Richard and I are sitting in his apartment like minutes before he's supposed to be like out of there. <laughs> and, and I'm like talking to him and then I ask him that question in there and we both start laughing on camera and I go, you were just being an asshole, weren't you? He goes, yes, <laughs> you think I have? And it was just one of those moments where, you know, like we, we were just having a human interaction and a human conversation and I'm just like, <laughs> you're fucking lying to me right now and then he's like yeah of course i am like you know what i mean so like the fact that we're like laughing about it where it's like literally minutes before richard's supposed to be like he's going to be on the streets it's just like like i said like i'm grateful to have to have gotten to experience that every time i watch that scene in the documentary it tears me up and makes me makes me smile you know and it's just it's so funny to me it's it's, it's like it's like perfect richard and roy moment and then the other moment I love is when, obviously, I come back seven years later and see him at the door with uh, at Kathleen's house. That that scene always just happens to cheer me up whenever I see it. Uh, it just for me, right? Like it's my own. Per- I have my own journey in this story too. So for me, it was like it, it always cheers me up because I'm like, we did it, you know. Like when I hug him there at the door, it's just like it's it's this is being put behind us now, you know. It it, it feels good. So. Yeah, I like that scene too because I go, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it was at it was at that point, right? Like it's like this is well, this I, a long way. You know, I I know the scene that you're talking about. Obviously, I was there, and and a lot of stuff at the beginning of the film I don't have clear memory of it because I was you know out of my mind and all that stuff, but. um but I think you, the choice is good because as much as, you know, I want people to like me or love me, it, the challenge of the film is to be able to, can you have compassion for someone that's fighting as hard as he is to try and become well, right? And uh, suddenly the this guy starts spouting, you know, Lululemon homilies um, that are sort of, like you said, redundant, because we've seen that, right? That it, it asks the audience to to form their own opinion instead of hearing what I think, right? And and I think that that is, that's compelling at the end of it. When you go to a movie, and at the end of it, you, you know, you're hanging out, chatting about it with your friends, it's nice when there's these, you know, loose ends where people go, well, you know, what I thought or what I felt instead of, well, remember yeah, when exactly. he said that, right? Yeah. And and you have to risk that that what you've shot will speak for itself. And I think the reviews so far have been pretty clear about that, that that's what they felt has happened is that, that you, as a, a filmmaker and a documentarian, just let the story tell itself, and um, and that's uh, in, in, enormously uh, um, courageous to risk saying, "Well, I'm going to you know, let them see the truth, and if they hate Richard and hate this film, and so be it." You know, I I don't like. Documentaries at the end that show like, and the moral of the story is you know pick up <laughs> <Yeah>. your litter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that was my yeah. eleven hundred cents worth. Yeah, I thought it ended really well, and it was a very powerful film. You know, very candid and raw, and you know there were a lot of points where I got emotional because I've been through some of those same types of scenarios that Richard's been in and it just felt uh very real and genuine and I don't know it just felt very personal and and very real thank you thank you I you know I think that one of the things that gives it credibility or or is that I'm not famous right and and although I am, you know, infamous, and you know, there's lots of people that know who I am, and blah blah blah. I'm not a celebrity. And the other thing is, you know, to be is that I lived. You know, 
They tried to make documentaries like this before, and they tend to end prematurely and rather badly because, you know, the person they're filming overdoses, right? You know, that, that Whitney Houston documentary, I, you know, I can't see a frame of that without seeing her dead in the tub. You know, it's just so grim, you know? It's hard for me to watch a Robin Williams film now because of knowing what happened there. So um, the good fortune of this film and for me is that that I remain um, in recovery. And that, as you know, Brett, and as you know, Roy, is um, the grace of God, nothing else. You know, it's just, you know, something that we've been handed. And as a result, I think it behooves us to do the best we can with the time that we have been given in this second season, this second chance, right? Give people hope and maybe some forgiveness. I know that people that will see the film will, who have lost people to addiction might find a little bit of peace knowing that, you know, that it's hard. Recovery is not easy. And, and it's hard for people to get well, and some people just don't, you know, and to to let themselves off the hook, too. There was nothing anybody could do for me, right? Kathleen, Roy, all those people, all those comedians, my, my present, nothing anybody could do, right? It had to be between me and my higher power. And, and today, to this day, it remains that way, right? Mm-hmm. So... Enough of that speech. <laughs> in the midst of all these uh, interviews in the media for this film, I'm uh, speaking at an AA meeting on Wednesday afternoon. So that's uh, in the midst of all that I will end up sharing in a you know anonymous way. I think you guys answered most of my questions now. The film's coming out on Tuesday, correct? Where can where can our listeners find find that? Yeah, so the the film is coming out on uh, June sixteenth. That's this Tuesday, and you can get it on iTunes and on Amazon, and then it'll be rolled out on various other platforms. Uh, on Tuesday, you'll you'll get you'll get to see it on Amazon and iTunes. They can download a copy for themselves and then uh following a month after that they'll actually be able to start buying dvds as well even though no one really buys dvds anymore but you know there's a there's a behind the scenes special feature on the dvd that is kind of cool so more footage richard hasn't seen (laughs) (laughs) brett i never i i didn't see a frame of this until it premiered in whistler i had to just trust that Roy was doing what he was doing. I had no idea if it was any good or not. You know, we had a deal from the from the beginning that he would be the filmmaker and I would be Richard Latch, and that would be it. And so he never turned the camera around and said, here's what the frame is or anything. And I'm sort of grateful for that. And when I saw the film, I was like, wow, this guy's gotten good. It's interesting how in the film you can see the quality of the cameras and the quality of the filmmaking improves over time. Seven years of shooting, you can see that this film just starts the the depth of the color and the expressions and the framing and everything just gets better and better and better. So it's almost like the the film technology was in the journey of recovery as I was, right? As I got Mm -hmm. clean, so did the the filmmaking. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. It's cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a wild ride walking through that. I've been fortunate in my my career too, Brett, is that I've had uh, um, two mentors that have have provided opportunity for me to to grow uh, as a filmmaker as well. So, um, you know, thank God for Bud Smith and Scott Smith. They are really the ones who encouraged me to finish this doc because it it was difficult at times because um, I had all this footage and that's the daunting task, having all that sitting in front of you and thinking like, 
you know, and like I said, again, asking those moral questions, right? Like, am I even supposed to do this? Like, has my purpose already been served? Like Richard Sober, he's, he's getting there. You know, I, I still talk to him, you know, during the editing process and throughout all those years, we still stayed in touch even when I wasn't filming, you know, so I knew he was doing well. Um, and it was just like, okay, maybe my purpose is served here. Maybe I'm not supposed to edit any of this together. Maybe it's just like, that was it. Maybe I was just supposed to be a part of this man's life. And, and, and like Richard said, like it helped him grab onto something. So he, he had a reason to live, you know, to get him to that homeless shelter and then get him to that recovery center. Right. So, you know, I, I had to question those things, right. For all the years that was sitting there and I'm going like, am I even supposed to be doing this? And, um, and I remember one day I was sitting in the studio with my mentor, Scott, and I was working on some commercials that, at the time that I directed and he was walking me through different edits and different things like that. And, and Bud and Scott are the type, like these are world-class, these are Oscar nominated editors, right? So they, they, they're working with massive movies, right? They're not, they're not just some guys who edit, like they, they know how to craft a film. Like they, there's a craftsmanship that goes into that. Right. So they're at, at that time, they're just dumping all this information into me and I'm like a sponge just in there day and night, you know, gathering all of it. And um, I remember one day he walked in and he just, he just said to me, Roy, how, you know, how can I, how can I help you today? And uh, I said, well, I said, I I got something if you want to look at it. And he said, sure. So I showed him this um, 45 minute edit I had of the doc and it was of Richard and it was the very beginning stages. And, uh, and they always taught me, they go, don't say anything. You just hit play and you leave the room. And he's like, that's it. And they've taught me, like, let your work speak for yourself. You know, because I went through a process, sorry to make this long, but it's important, is that I went through a process with them where I would show them my work on anything that I was working on, and I would always explain it. And then they would always, they're they're harsh, right? They would just tell me, like, that doesn't work, and here's why. That doesn't work, and here's why. And they would always say to me, like, Roy, you're not handing out cue cards at the end of your movie to tell them what all the stuff that they missed, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, people are going to watch the movie and they're going to like it or they're not. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. So I just said, okay, here it is. And I hit play and, and I left the room. And then he came back 45 minutes later into my room and he goes, and he just looked on his face and was like, wow. And I, and I was like, I was like, oh my God, he hates what I'm doing. <laughs> and then he goes, he goes, like Scott was like, you, I like it. He goes, and I like Richard. <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, <laughs> he goes, he goes, let's do this. This is what we're doing next. And I was like, all right. And, I, and like, just the fact that like my mentors were that excited, it, 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 it boosts my confidence as a filmmaker and, and it brought hope to me because like I said, I was questioning whether I should be doing this. Right. Like it was a, not only was it a moral qualm with me, it was actually like, it, it, is this worth my time? Right. Like there's two things happening at the same time because there was so much in front of me that it was overwhelming me. And I and I'm and you know, I remember I I'm not like a working director at this time. I'm you know, I'm I'm working at a computer shop, right? Fixing computers during the day and then coming into the studio at night. You know, so there's a lot of lot going into building a career, right? And so yeah, when 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 he said that to me, it was like he just like opened the floodgates for me. Like by him just saying, I like it and I like Richard. This is what we're doing next. And I was just like, boom, this like amount of confidence just rushed through me where I was like, okay, I can do this. And then, you know, they were, they were encouraging me and helping me along the way. And uh, like Scott and Bud and Bud's wife, Lucy, these are these wonderful people who live here in LA that gave me an opportunity of a lifetime, like literally opened the door for me, like they open the door to a studio that I can go in and create. And that's where this thing was developed. Right. Cause it was a process of just trial and error of like how to put together this story, because it's not like Richard, ha- it's not a concise documentary. Like there's no script, right? Like, like what I captured is what I captured. And in a lot of documentaries, sometimes there's a script, right? Like you're telling the story of Whitney Houston for two example, like they have writers that write that out of what they're going to show, what clips they're going to pull. You know, I've worked on numerous shows like these before in my in my career. So in this case scenario, it was different. We really had to find it in the edit. And then, you know, thank God things worked out the way they worked out in my life. And, you know, I found an editor that I gelled with, Adam Tyree, wonderful man, um, really patient, totally understood it. 
And the great thing about Adam is I knew we had something special was because Adam is African-American and he's from Atlanta, the furthest thing from Canada, you know, just like no in anything like that. And he just like, he got it. Like he just got it. And, and he understood what we were doing there and he clicked and, and by injecting Adam in there and taking me out of the editing seat and injecting Adam into it, he really excelled as an editor. I believe like he learned a lot, had a structure story, but he brought in that perspective of that. Like he's not connected to me. He's not connected to Richard and he's not connected to Canada or entertainment or alcoholism or anything because it was important for me not to make an AA documentary, right? This is about this man's life, you know? And, and, and Adam was the perfect person to put in that seat because he really knew how to look at it from a bird's eye view perspective. Because by the time we were close to like really honing in edits, I was way too close to the project at the time. Right. Like I, I, I you know, then, then now as a documentarian to, I'm, I'm manipulating and influencing the film that now it's not becoming as authentic as it needs to be. And it needs to be as authentic as it can be. Or else then it's not a documentary. It can quickly turn into fiction um, or mockumentary, right? So Adam Adam was able to like really start to present me um, scenarios in the film of how we could structure it that I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that is right. Yeah, okay, I like that. I like what you did there with Richard. I like what you did there with this scene. Like, that's true. That is what it, That is what happened. You know, and we were able to really construct it well. And so, yeah, Adam was a saving grace to that. And that's when I knew that I was like, okay, maybe this thing is supposed to be completed because the right people are coming in at the right time and the right things happen. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have it be released this Tuesday. It's been a long journey. I, I believe that this is what God intended for it. And I, and I, like I said, I hope that it brings hope to other people out there. I really do. That's, that's my only goal here. You know, I'm not looking to make money off of it. I haven't made a dime. I'm like, I'm in debt for making it you know what i mean like it's like i don't see it like making it never was it's about making money i just really hope that it does get out there and it helps people you know i i think it will personally i mean it was a great film and it was very moving and and i appreciate that you took so much time and and effort and thank you both for coming on and sharing your story and part of the journey of making this film it was great, man. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to interview us and help promote it and support it and do an interview with us. It, it means a lot to help get this message out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Brett. Um, you know, glad you're, you're getting behind this. And, you know, I mean, if you have a life to live and, you know, there's, you know, we sometimes wonder what our purpose is, um, you know, clearly there's, you know, more than just, uh, you know, stand-up comedy going on here. And and I think that that's what, the, I think that, you know, people are, are yearning for a story that is about stand-up comedy, but isn't about the funny parts, you know? My new CD is called uh, Living Clean and Talking Dirty. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Thanks. All right, guys. Thank you, guys. Okay. Thanks for the time. All right. Take care. Like Roy mentioned earlier, the movie will be available to download tomorrow, June the 16th, on iTunes and Amazon, and it will be available at the end of the month on some other platforms. I'll link that in the show notes. I just finished watching the movie, and it was fantastic. You guys don't want to miss this, so be sure to check it out. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Survey. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving us a rating or a review, and please be sure to tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we have a brand new website. It's recoverysurvey.com. Until next time, I've been your host, Brett. Thanks for listening.